1: Welcome. My name is Thomas Kelly, and you're listening to Episode 2 of the Jussie Podcast on the Revolver Podcast Network. This episode is The Trial of Jussie Smollett. And we're here again with our lead independent investigative reporter, Shelley Stanley. Shelley, welcome back. Thank you. Shelley, I have to tell you that uh, we believe you have uncovered, as far as we know, a lot of information, new facts and evidence that we haven't seen in any court records or media reports, and uh, new information, uh, much of which is interesting. Some is puzzling, and some of the information is alarming, to say the least. So let's get to it. And I want to point out, as we do, that we have tried to double-check the fine work of Shelley Stanley in her report and her continuing coverage of this uh, trial and the entire case. So far, we haven't seen a single error. So with that in mind, let's get to it. First, let's set the stage. We're in the circuit court of Cook County in Chicago, Illinois, for the trial of Justice Smollett on six counts of disorderly conduct, all fourth-degree felonies. The judge in the trial is Judge James Lynn, longtime veteran of Cook County Circuit Court. And Shelly, would you like to give us your take on Judge Lynn?
2: Um, I think, you know, it can be summed up in the things that he didn't allow to be spoken about at the trial. He basically banned the defense team from... Presenting a strong defense. He banned them from talking about police misconduct, the CPD leaks, the extensive misconduct allegation histories of the detectives who were assigned to this case, talking about Rahm Emanuel and Kim Fox, even from talking about the fact that Northwestern Hospital employees were fired en masse for leaking Jesse's hospital records. To the press.
1: They Judge were fired? Lynn,
2: yes, mm-hmm. for accessing and leaking Jesse's medical records. So Judge Lynn was very carefully setting the stage about what would be allowed to be talked about and what wouldn't be. And throughout the trial, he made it into the paper several times for kind of this outlandish behavior to try to enforce these kind of parameters around what the trial. Would be allowed to be and would not be allowed to be.
1: We said in the beginning we were going to try to be as fair as possible in this, in our review, our second look at the Jussie case and his conviction. Uh, so I want to stick to that. So I want to be kind of the devil's advocate here in some ways. And I would say, hey, the judge was within his lane to say that. I don't want to hear about a lot of extraneous stuff. Let's just get to the facts of this case. Let's get to the evidence. So I can see how you might want to exclude, talk about police behavior. And Chicago is so plagued by problems within the police department that it would be kind of futile to go there, except for one aspect of this. Jussie was tried for the crimes under the umbrella of disorderly conduct, uh, lying to the police, and filing a false police report. That's it. Nothing else. So when you say, hey, but talk about the police character, well, when you're talking about lying to police, you have to have access to information about the credibility of or integrity of both sides, of Jussie and of the police, specific police, who allege that he lied to them. So I think in that case, you make a fair point that especially, and I'm going to name names, Detective Kimberly Murray and Detective Robert Graves, those are two of the counts, lying to police, involve each of those officers. Did you find it negative information or Dubious information about either of those officers.
2: Yes, I did, and many other officers who were um, assigned to Jesse's case. But for Detective Kim Murray, she was formally accused of using homophobic hate speech against a black man. Um, well, that would certainly come into play
1: in Jesse's case, hmm?
2: right? It's yeah. It seems completely relevant to me that she did kind of the exact same thing, or as, as homophobic hate speech to a black man. And then Detective Robert Graves has been formally accused of using racist hate speech and threatening to commit violence against a group of black men and women. So those things seem very relevant, just so that the jury can kind of parse the information that they're getting from the detective. You know, if you were a jury member, watching a detective testify, and you knew in the back of your mind, well, this person was actually accused of doing something very similar, you might have a different reaction to their testimony. But if you're not allowed to know that information, you know, then you're kind of operating in a, in a vacuum. Fair enough. So the jury was in a certain realm that Judge Lynn had sort of created for them.
1: And by the same token, Jussie's character and his integrity— are important in this case because he's accused of lying. So it's fair enough for the jury to say, okay, well, he's in his mid-30s. What's his reputation? Is he a known liar or does he have a better reputation than that? And what about his behavior? Has Josie ever been arrested? Has he ever been suspected of a crime? Is he a good neighbor? Any of that can be brought in here. Didn't Judge Lynn say, hey, I don't want to hear about any of that?
2: He did. He banned all character witnesses from testifying about Jesse and even when his own lawyers tried to bring up his philanthropy or activist background, it was objected to by both the prosecution and the judge immediately say strike that from the record. Mm-hmm. So it was very clear that they they wanted Jesse to to be seen sort of in the realm of this crime rather than as a person with a background that could influence the jury if they knew about who he is as a human being.
1: Now, uh, let's move on to the jury. Uh, did, did Jesse have a jury, this peers?
2: The jury that he had was mostly much older than him. I think they were in 50s or older, except maybe one or two people were younger than that. One black person was on the jury, and I think one other person of color. So it was an older crowd and mostly white. And Chicago is 30% black, so it was a little bit confusing why they took all the black people off the jury. Also, they had taken off anybody who was gay or had a gay relative was immediately taken off the jury.
1: Do you mean during the voir dire, when they're questioning prospective jurors, would they ask potential jurors if they were gay or if they were relate, related to gay people?
2: Yeah, it seems, it seems like they did ask things like that. There was one juror who said that her child is gay, heard about this hate crime, and became afraid for her child. So she was really looking into it to make sure that her own child would be safe in Chicago and to see what she should do to help protect her child. And she was taken off the jury.
1: She was excused. Okay, we're still setting the stage for the trial. We haven't even uh, started, opened arguments yet. But there is something that troubled me here in your report that Judge Lynn, and people should know, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, everyone in the country, whatever the trial is, you have a right to a public trial for good reason. They don't want the government or anyone saying, hey, no, we'll take care of this in private. Never mind. Never mind you people. But Judge Lynn very much restricted observers at the trial to only Jesse's family and select members of the press. Is that right?
2: Yes. He did that repeatedly until a, a higher judge intervened and forced him to let people back into the courtroom um, in an overflow room, actually. So Judge Lynn seemed like he was looking out into the audience, seeing people that he didn't know and then having the sheriffs go over and remove them. And they were also doing that with people in Jesse's family group in the first row where they were sitting. Sometimes some of them would also be told to leave the courtroom. But all of the public was removed from the courtroom for several sections of the trial and were standing out in the hallway, which is a violation of the Sixth Amendment, as you said we all have a right to a public trial. And there was one actually high profile case of this that made it into the news. A young activist and poet and columnist in Chicago, Bella Boz was forcibly removed from the courtroom, whole court building by armed guards. Judge Lynn First sat on the bench and said that she was a self-proclaimed activist and said, nobody is going to infect this trial and then had her removed from the court building and she was banned from the court building for the remainder of the trial.
1: Hey, do you know if, was she behaving badly in the courtroom?
2: No, not at all. She, um, she on a lunch break went and spoke to the press. And so one of the statements that she made to the press was that she doesn't know Jesse to be someone to falsify a story but she does know the Chicago Police Department to be that kind of department. And it seems like Dan Webb, the special prosecutor, might have overheard that because according to the Chicago Tribune, he himself alerted Judge Lynn to some, quote, press issues. And then Judge Lynn, as a response to that, specifically banned her from the courtroom that afternoon after she had spoken to the press during a lunch break which is, of course, her right and anyone's right to speak to the press.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico...
1: When you talk about Dan Webb, you're talking about the special prosecutor in this case who was brought in, and we're not sure who requested a special prosecutor in a disorderly conduct case, but uh, Dan Webb is an esteemed member of the bar. He is, uh, I believe, president of Winston Strawn, one of the most prominent law firms in the country. And he came in with an entire team from Winston Strawn, uh, his assistants and aides in what became a special prosecutor's office in Chicago just for this case to prosecute a disorderly conduct charge. Do, do you know why that happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was actually kind of a, an outcry among the judiciary and the justice system members in Chicago. Mm-hmm at least some of them, when the charges were dropped against Jesse. So a retired judge, Judge Sheila O'Brien, actually called for a special prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, that's actually not legal because she had no, um, she was not involved in the case at all. She, on her own as a retired judge, called for a special prosecutor. They were supposed to, to choose a local person, it seems like they looked a little bit locally, but said that nobody was um, qualified, and then skipped some steps to pick Dan Webb, who, as you mentioned, is a very well-known, powerful lawyer in Chicago. Specifically, He's has a long history in Chicago. It seems like handpicked to, to be the special prosecutor in this case, and why they would go to all that length to prosecute a disorderly conduct case where... Pretty much nobody gets sentenced to jail for fourth degree disorderly conduct is a little
1: bit puzzling. Dan Webb is maybe the most special, special prosecutor you could get. He's been doing this in big, big cases like Iran-Contra for decades. He's been like the go-to special prosecutor in huge national cases. It baffles me why they would bring him into this case. Do you know why?
2: I think that it seems that Chicago politics and the judges, the justice system, were highly invested in prosecuting Jesse. I mean, even the city sued him. So they were very much wanting to bring this to a form of justice that they thought was adequate.
1: Hey, uh, Shelly, I want to talk a little bit about the Austin Dario brothers, they had confessed, apparently, to the police, and we talked about this in episode one, in the 47th hour of their time being held by police before they were charged or released, and suddenly they confessed. And they repeated that confession before the grand jury and repeated it again in court. Now, my understanding is you were not present for the Austin Dario's testimony in court. Is that correct?
2: Right. I wasn't there at that point.
1: And what do you know about their testimony in court?
2: During their testimony, they went through the points that the prosecution gave point for point, said that they, they did this hoax with Jesse. During the cross-examination by the the defense, they could not answer many of the questions and said, I don't recall at least two dozen times in response to individual questions. So it was a little bit baffling why they would not recall any details when asked by the defense, but during the prosecution they had, you know, many, many details to share.
1: And now it sounds to me like they... Uh, repeated their grand jury testimony in the court almost as if they're characters in a the play. They just memorized their lines and confessed to uh, being co-conspirators with Jesse, and he paid them some money, and they did the job. And then when they were questioned by the defense, they couldn't answer hardly any questions. Exactly. Uh, so it it just doesn't ring true. There's more about the Ossendario brothers. We talked before about the police raid on their house where there were so many weapons and tactical weapons and ammunition plus some drugs, cocaine and heroin. And all of those uh, appear to indicate the Ossendario brothers could have been charged or arrested for multiple crimes, far more serious than disorderly conduct, but they never were arrested. Uh, We don't know anything about whatever agreement may have been made between the Osendario brothers and the police. Do you have any information there about this? I, I just, I think it's fair to say, suspicious confessions of the Osendario brothers.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also quite telling because they were not charged in any way with participating in this supposed hoax. So Jesse's charged with with something, but they're not charged at all. And they became the police's witnesses, really. As far as them not being held accountable for the, the drugs and the guns, I think it's just a, a situation where we have to ask, why? You know, it's it's hard to understand why the Chicago police would overlook all those things. And when the Chicago police detectives were asked during the court, during the trial, why they did not charge them for the heroin, the detective said on the stand that he thinks the heroin might have been in the brother's safe for 10 to 20 years. And so that's why he didn't think to charge them for it. So, uh, so, you know, they, it was kind of a, a an answer that doesn't really make sense. And it, it sounds like they're just trying to figure out a way to to explain why they wouldn't charge the brothers for something that they'd charge anyone else for. As far as the guns, um, Ola is a convicted felon. He's the older brother. And so he's not allowed to live in a home with guns. But he he did. I mean, it seems that he was living there. The police list that as his address in the police report and they also said that his license was there and his clothes were there but during the closing arguments the special prosecutor's office repeatedly said that you know ola doesn't actually live there and they didn't give an alternative address or explain where he actually lived they just said that he wasn't charged with being in a home with guns because he didn't actually live in that home
1: you know it just doesn't make much sense that the police would drop all charges and lose any interest in following up on potential first-degree felony charges for an array of potential crimes based on the evidence that they found at the Osendario brothers' house. And yet, they threw all that to the side of the road to pursue a disorderly conduct charge against Jesse. I don't understand it, but I think there was another very critical moment in the trial when uh, the person that I believe is the only eyewitness on the scene of the crime that night to testify, and that would be Anthony Moore. Were there any other eyewitnesses that testified in court that you know of?
2: No, he was the only one that testified in court. There was another witness. In before the attack, but she did not come to court.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about Anthony Moore. He testified during the trial that he was working as a guard at the Sheraton Hotel. We've been over this before. He saw two men run by him right after the alleged attack on Jussie, right from that direction. This is on video camera. He said the first man was tall, masked, and white. He was a white man. He said the second man had his face totally blocked. He couldn't see any of it, and he had no opinion on what race or ethnicity or whatever that he was. And uh, his testimony is, in fact, appears to be confirmed by uh, one of the uh, surveillance video cameras at the scene. Anthony Moore also said that after he told the exact same story, to the police, a couple days after the incident, that he was pressured and threatened by someone from the special prosecutor's office to change his story and to say that the man who ran by him that he said was white was black. And he refused to do that. And the defense team even asked him, "Hey, hey, do you see the person who who intimidated you or threatened you? Do you see them in in the court? And he said, yeah, that's him right over there. And he pointed to Sean Weber of the special prosecutor's office. What do you make of that, Shelley?
2: I think for the special prosecutor's office, their case is that the Otendario brothers were the attackers. For a witness to be coming forth who was seen on film and gave police testimony three days after the attack that contradicts their story. That would be why they would try to threaten him to to change his story, to align with their story.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and
1: Didn't the media uh, give this uh, headline coverage? To me, a fair person might say, hey, wait a second. Jussie Smollett said, this is what happened. I was attacked by these, these two white guys in downtown Chicago. Then they ran away past the Sheraton. And the only eyewitness to testify, the security guard, Anthony Moore, said, yes, I was standing in front of the Sheraton these two men ran by. The only one I could be sure was any race or ethnicity was the larger of the men who was a white guy. He repeated it several times. Yes, I'm sure it was a white man. I didn't see any mention of that anywhere in media except one little blurb, about half a paragraph on Fox. Do you have an opinion about why that wasn't covered?
2: It was covered very briefly. I did see quite a few article headlines about it for about an hour, but then Jesse took the stand and they immediately switched onto his testimony, um, during the trial. So the media sort of dropped it immediately afterwards and several outlets didn't report on it at all. Like the New York times didn't report on it at all, but Fox news did a, a much better job in describing what the, what the witness did actually say in court, and repeated it a few times to give their viewers the information.
1: There's one more highlight or lowlight from the trial that I need your opinion on, and that is during deliberations by the jury, Judge Lynn decided on his own motion to send the jury a video of the ABC interview of Jussie by Robin Roberts on Good Morning America. Now, that video was made within a few days, not too long, less than a week, I think, after the incident. And at that time, the perception, the general perception, was that Jussie had been a victim. And the video that they shot over about an hour and a half was edited down to 17 minutes for ABC for its own purposes, then broadcast. The judge decided... To send that video to the jurors in deliberations. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, the prosecution had asked him to send it back the day before, and he denied their request because only about 35 seconds had been shown during the trial. So he said it would be unfair to send the whole thing back without being able to talk about it and put it in context and cross examine it. But then the next day, on his own, he just sent it back to the jury suddenly.
1: How can that be fair when you're basically providing some new evidence to the jury in the middle of their deliberations on the verdict? If you do it like that, you deprive the defense of any opportunity to question or review, parse or cross-examine about the contents of the video. They haven't even seen the video, or most of it, that the jury saw in the middle of deliberations. Exactly. How can that be legal?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure that it was. I think that the defense had asked to re impanel the jury so that they could cross-examine and explain that it was an edited video, but the judge denied them. So the Chicago Tribune covered that aspect, as well as the judge allowing the jury to ask the questions publicly that they had during their deliberations he made them do it in private directly to him he did not allow the press to observe the process so the Chicago Tribune reporters were concerned about that as well and they wrote an article about these concerns so I'm not it doesn't seem legal to me and there were some people saying that it was jury tampering by the judge
1: I've never seen an article myself related to any of that you have apparently
2: there was one article from the chicago tribune they actually expedited the the transcripts and paid five dollars a page to be able to see what happened during the jury deliberations mm-hmm. and then they wrote an article about it
1: okay speaking of jury deliberations did you have a chance to talk to any of the jurors or get any information about the deliberations after the verdict was in
2: no i did not i i just saw what they said in the press
1: and did the jurors talk to reporters or publicly make any declarations after the verdict any specific jurors
2: one of the jurors did it um, anonymously and then the one juror who did it named was the only black juror on the panel
1: okay and in all fairness what did that juror have to say you know
2: he said that he does not understand the motive or why Jesse would have done that, um, made a hoax, and that he hoped that Jesse could continue to pursue his acting career. He said that he didn't understand the noose part of it. So that was confusing to many people why the noose was on Jesse when the police arrived.
1: That's a good question. Do you have any comment on that, that Jesse apparently had taken off? the noose when he returned home after he was attacked. Then his friend, even though uh, Jussie uh, supposedly said he did not want to contact the police, his friend insisted, and his friend was the one who actually contacted the police. The police came, and before they got there, Jesse put the noose back around his neck. Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: During the trial, that was talked about extensively because I think a lot of people— In the media were confused about why Jesse would have a noose on his neck when the police arrived and so what he explained was that he went home after the hate crime took the noose off did not call the police and his friend Frank Gatson insisted on calling the police and you can hear that actually in the 911 call and in the transcripts that Frank says he doesn't want me to call you but I'm calling you on my own Mm -hmm. and so the police were coming And what Jesse said on the stand was that Frank then advised him to put the noose back on because otherwise it would look like he was tampering with the evidence. Okay. So he put it back around
1: his neck. You mentioned, just a minute ago, you mentioned the questions about motive. And we've reviewed the evidence and your report and the transcripts. And it appears to us there were three different motives presented. Early on, the police said that Jesse's career was fading and he wanted attention. Okay, now we checked that out. That doesn't fly. Jesse was at the peak of his career. He was getting more attention than he ever had before in his life. And he'd been prominent enough since he was a little kid, making movies and TV shows and performing. At the time, he was making half a million or so Per episode on Empire, he was rising to lead star of the series. He had been featured in singing performances on Empire, including duets with Mariah Carey and Alicia Keys. The reports are that Jussie is kind of a low-key person, that in his private life, he doesn't like attention. He's a black gay man. When he's off camera, uh, he's... He likes to be left alone. Do you think his career was fading?
2: No, I I don't. And I, I was always a little bit confused about that particular motive because the police said that as a motive, but it didn't appear to me that they would have any proof of that. It seemed like you're kind of saying something about somebody without asking them if that's true. Some reporters at that time did ask Fox if he was dissatisfied with his salary and things like this. And they said no. He was very happy at Empire. And both on Jussie's end and on Fox's end, that motive didn't stand up. So I didn't understand where the police came up with that motive.
1: We just want to reconfirm what you just said about the dispute with Empire about money. And several media outlets did follow up on that and contacted... Virtually everyone that could comment on that, including the producers at Empire, cast and crew, network executives, and everyone involved from Jussie to everyone at Empire said, no, there's no truth to that. Okay, and the last one that was raised was they said Jussie was upset with Empire's lax response to some racist and homophobic threats that had been made against him. Do you know anything about that?
2: Yes, they also did talk about that at the trial. They had a man named Brett Maloney from Fox testify, Mm -hmm. and he said that they did get just the security after he received a hate letter, death threat in the mail, and that he was very hesitant to accept security. He sort of accepted. He told him
1: he didn't want the security,
2: right? Mm -hmm. But he agreed to take it because they were insisting. You know, you really need this. We're worried about you. So that motive didn't really stand up either.
1: We'd like to ask anyone out there, since the three possible motives brought up by prosecutors or in the media, that none of them come close to reality. We'd like to hear from someone who can think of a motive. If none of these work, why did, if Jussie's guilty, why did he do it? What was his motive? Do you have any thought about that, Shelley? I do.
2: I mean, I think that it speaks for itself that the police's motives that they came up with and told the public, don't stand up. You know, I think we can just leave it at that. If If they can't come up with a motive that works, we have to question if what they're saying is true in other aspects, because they're telling us very definitively that this is the motive and this is the motive and this is the motive. But none
1: of those stood up. Uh, Shelly, we want to let you go pretty soon and wrap up episode two here. But one last question that I have to ask you in your work as investigative reporter on this case, did you talk to anyone on the defense counsel's team?
2: As a reporter, when I was investigating it and writing articles, at one point, actually, before I wrote Jesse Smollett, the Chicago Police Department and the Appearing Disappearing Video Footage Trick, Mm -hmm. I looked at police's reports and I saw that there were these different witnesses that I hadn't ever heard of, like Anthony Moore. I, at that point, actually didn't really want to write any more articles. I had written three (laughs) at at that time, but I noticed his defense team wasn't talking about it. So I emailed them and said, did you see the tweets reports? There's witnesses and this and that, but they did not reply
1: to me. Okay, so the question I have to ask you with that in mind is, do you see a lack of urgency with defense counsel? This is just, I want your opinion on this. can't be fact-based, but there are so many gaping holes in the trial and the appearance of unfair or improper conduct by the judge, and even some indications of police misconduct, as far as I can see, the defense counsel remained relatively mute uh, throughout the trial and even after. Uh, You know, I, I don't know. I'm not a courtroom veteran. I only know what I've seen on TV. In cases like this, when things like that happen on TV, well, the defense counsel jumps out of his chair and says, hey, what the heck is going on here? Why didn't that happen in Jussie's trial?
2: I think that's a a great question to pursue. I can't really speak to it other than to, as you said, say my opinion. And I read a book called Crook County, which is by a, a sociologist. And she just talked about how both the defense team and prosecution in Crook County tend to really have to cater to the judges because they work there they don't want to get on the judge's bad side because it would affect the rest of their career. So that a lot of times they don't provide the best defense for their for their clients because they have to appease the judge's mood. I think that because Jesse's defense team is based in Cook County, that could account for not being very outspoken about many of the things that happened during the trial.
1: Okay. Uh, it's just something to think about. Shelly, once again, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time explaining in such great detail the results of your investigation into the Jesse Smollett case. And we want to emphasize that, like uh, most other people out there, we thought—I I believe even you thought—at first glance, okay, Jesse Smollett's guilty. The guy's confessed, and it doesn't make any sense. Case closed. Let's move on. But thankfully. You dove deeper into the case, and I think we have to address all of the anomalies and the problems and the complications and disturbing facts that you brought forward, and I want to thank you for that. Shelly, yes, I'm sure for- we'll, be, we'll be talking again.
2: Okay. That
1: okay. sounds good. Shelly, you take care.
2: All right. You too.
1: Stay tuned for Episode 3 of the Jussie Podcast on Revolver, a closer look at the most important moments of the trial the testimony of the only eyewitness to the hate crime or hoax. Listen on iTunes, Spotify, or where you find your favorite podcasts.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.